Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I don't know if you know this, but we go way back. Y'all probably don't realize that. You just meet me for the first time. You don't even realize how far back we go. We actually go so far back to the beginning of my journey with Jesus. So, so let me tell you how. One of your former pastors was the pastor that led my wife to Jesus in 2001, Pastor Kim Smith. Um, when we were in Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, that, was, that was the pastor that I was raised up under and uh, served with him on staff for several years. His son, Brett Smith, is one of my dearest friends. And it even goes, I, I can't get away from Sterling. So, another one of my dear friends is Pastor Irene. I mean, she and I, oh my goodness, she's fantastic. And another one of my dear friends is Dan Rodriguez, who also grew up in this church. And uh, I get a chance to spend and work a lot with uh, Pastor Ryan Keel as well. So, like, I just can't get away from y'all. Like, my whole life, I feel this is almost a little surreal that I get to stand and preach to y'all because, because I feel like I've been traveling this journey for a long time. And now my friend, Pastor Denny and Jody are here. And what a gift. What a gift to be with you uh, this weekend. You know, I was, I was, this morning as I was writing in my journal, I, I, the first words I wrote were, Lord, thank you for the privilege of preaching to your people in Sterling today. Um, because I don't take these things lightly. I get to do these often and a lot and around the country. I do enjoy this one because it meant a lot less dealing with airports. So that was nice. I just kind of drove over here. Uh, but this is always a gift to me that you would invite me to share in this space, in this moment, in this time with you. Because if God wants to ignite something in us, um, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part, not, not, not simply the one through whom that comes, but the one who is also the recipient of that igniting, because we all need to have that thing that God wants to do in us, stirred up within us, that the Holy Spirit would be stirred up deep within us, that we'd be able to lean into what God has for us. So that's my prayer. That's my hopes uh, throughout these next few days that I'm with you and uh, that the Lord would meet us. Can we pray together before we get started? Lord, what a gift, what a gift, what a gift this morning is. Thank you for the folks here at Sterling First Church of Nazarene and for literally the decades upon decades that they have impacted and made a difference in this community. They just heard me say a list of names. I hope they realize how many people who are now serving Jesus in vocational ministry can trace their lineage all the way back to this church. That, Lord, is a gift, and that's not something that all churches share in. So I, I, I pray that they can celebrate that, that even as I'm here, I have a connection to the people of God in this place. Now, Lord, we're going to turn our attention to the preaching of the word, which for me is always a miracle. Because somehow as a woman or man stands to proclaim the word, your word, your spirit meets that word and carries it to your people and that the transformation that only you can bring takes place. And we all step back and we say, praise be to God because God is the only one who could bring that change. So Lord, I'm just going to ask that in the midst of that miracle of preaching that you would use me in spite of me. You know my inabilities, my inadequacies and deficiencies that somehow today that we would be the recipients of good news, a good news story that might change us dynamically and dramatically. And so, Lord, I pray that you would have your way, and we'll be certain to give you 
All the glory and honor in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Now, I'm not in te- now I'm, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the she that we're going to be talking about in this story was not in any way trying to make a scene. Not in that place, not amongst those people. See, in a moment like that, in the moment that we're going to deal with in just a moment, in a moment like that, stealth is imperative. You want to remain unseen. When, when a person stumbles in, steeped in their shame, they want to be shrouded in their obscurity. They don't want anyone to notice them. They, have you ever noticed when you meet someone who's dealing with shame, they don't raise their heads. They don't look you in the eyes. They shuffle past you. They, they want to remain blending in. They don't want to stand out. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you understand the story, she would quickly shift from being an extra in this drama that was unfolding all around her to now sort of moving from one of those faceless, nameless masses that we read past in the scripture to the spotlight now shining upon her, and she couldn't avoid it any longer. Now, she'd arrived there already rebelling against her better judgment. She was one of those who her emotions sort of lay pretty easily on the sleeve. And you've got any folks like that in here where you just emotions are kind of always on your sleeve? That was, that was her story. She always had her emotions close to the surface, ready to bust open at any moment. But against her bed is her judgment. She just, she couldn't resist the pull towards that, that moment, that gathering. She'd heard of Jesus. She'd heard about this presence of Jesus and it had intrigued her to say the least, but it's probably more accurate to say that because of what she'd heard about Jesus, that she found herself desperately and expectantly hopeful. See, word had gotten around about Jesus and and how his presence carried this sort of shame-slicing precision, a presence that seemed to announce to people, and I need you to hear me say this, I see you. I see you not for your faults and your failures, but I see you as the beloved in my father's heart. Wherever Jesus went, that was the kind of message that Jesus sent. She'd heard the ways in which he had subverted the tired, worn out stories of condemnation and critique and instead lavished affection and attention and compassion on the most unlikely And she couldn't resist the allure of his proximity. She she had to get close. But, But, you know, not too close, lest she make a scene. But then, as was her plight, those emotions that she wore on her sleeve came rolling off the sleeve and onto his feet in the form of a tear. But not one of those inadvertent, easily missed mistake kind of tears. Not that. The kind of tears that she shed was that deluge of emotion, the floodgates open, the can't stop them from falling kind of blubbering, snotting, nasty cry kind of tears. And her sorrow, her shame, now wet Jesus' skin. 
scrambling like a person who had just spilt something without anything to wipe it up with. She looked for anything she could to clean up her mess. So she took this scandalously loosened hair. Because understand that only certain people wore their hair down. It was the kind of hairdo that, that would often be poked at and pointed at by the exploitive men or the snickering children who knew what she did. And as she knelt there at Jesus' feet, she wiped and she wiped and she wiped and she took whatever little value she had in this world, in fact, the tool of her trade, her perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. And she knelt there crying and wiping and filling the room with the scent of her seductive aroma. But now she had been outed by the crowd, no longer able to hang back unnoticed. Now all eyes were on her. Eyes carrying expressions that she was accustomed to seeing. They They were the kind of eyes that had these expressions of rage flicker across their faces because how dare her? How dare her, the audaciousness of her to be in that place. She also saw in the face of some that pity. You ever notice how pity looks? Pity looks like, y'all know. And we don't even meet it, right? When we, when we encounter someone whose life we know is broken and damaged, we just have this knee-jerk reaction to, And she was so accustomed to those faces. But there's one face that that was different. Listen to, to as Luke captures her story in the seventh chapter of his gospel. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in the town who had led a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume And as she stood behind him, wiping his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. And what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. You can even almost hear it, right? Even the way we say that. She's a sinner. Yeah, you know. Jesus answered, Simon, I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, in 2001, I knew that things were coming apart in my life. Things were unraveling. I knew that the current situation that I was in was untenable. I knew that if something didn't change, everything would would change and not for the best. See, my journey with Jesus began in August of 2001 in a small chapel on a small army post in Skopje, Macedonia, about halfway through my deployment with the United States Army. But before I get there, I got to back up just a little bit. So I had a nominal faith background until I was about 10 years old. We, we attended church sporadically, and I am really convinced that the only reason we went to church is because my, my mom loved to hear me sing. So we had a children's choir, so that was, I think, the purpose for us attending church. But then we, my family stepped away completely, and 
I had zero regularity of church. The only time I went to church was when I visited my grandma's, but I had zero regularity until I was about a, literally almost a decade and a half after that. During most of my high school days and early college years, I, I would have either said that I was an, an outright atheist or that I was a lazy agnostic. But either way, I wasn't real interested in the whole religion, Jesus, faith thing. And during my college years, I had developed quite a reputation. Uh, if, you could, if you can picture in your mind the poster child for the fraternity, partying, binge drinking, football playing, alcoholic, there would be my face. I would be that poster child. In fact, it was in the midst of that that I met my wife. We had uh, found ourselves, both of us, steeped in an incredibly dysfunctional lifestyle, and we met at a club on my 21st birthday, or so they tell me. It was bad. It was really bad. After a series of subsequent encounters at that same bar and various other bars, my wife and I would find ourselves engaged five months after meeting each other and married graduating from college and shipping off to basic training within 11 months of meeting one another. And, and now both of us were entrenched in these deeply immature and dysfunctional lifestyles. And somehow we had convinced ourselves that if you take those two things together and put them together in a marriage, surely that won't mess everything up. Surely that won't erode the stability of your relationship. And we were right. It didn't slowly erode our relationship. It torpedoed it from the outset. It was ugly. And what unfolded for the next three years of our lives was, was broken people doing broken things and wounding each other in about every way that you can imagine. And we were deeply, deeply wounded in living in our brokenness. We had two kids both of which saved our marriages at pivotal points along the way. But by the time I had deployed to Macedonia, I had carried so much shame about who I was and, and, and my, my role as a man, as a husband, as a father. And I would try to outpace that shame with accomplishments and accolades and promotions and achievements, but shame was my shroud. It's what hung around my neck every single day. Near the end of, end of July, beginning of August 2001, my wife and I had talked on the phone and I, we had made the decision that when I came back that uh, that was it. We were going to get a divorce. We were done. It was finished. Now, I knew enough from my previous days that when you find yourself in a broken moment, you go to church. I didn't know really what for. So I went to chapel that morning and nothing specific happened. But that evening, that late night after I'd finished my, my job for the day, which took me late into the evening, I'd just taken off all my gear and I'd climbed up in my rack. And if any of you are former military, you know, like once you get all the gear off, you don't necessarily want to put it all back on. So I'd, I'd climbed in and I'd, I'd gotten in my rack, bed for those who are not military folks, and I kept hearing this voice, get up and go to the chapel, get up and go to the chapel. And I just said to myself, I was like, okay, self, I don't know where that voice come, but I'm pretty sure I can do that in the morning. Don't need to do it now. 
And the voice just kept getting louder and louder, get up and go to the chapel. So it was midnight, I put all my gear back on, and I walked over the chapel, and I found myself sitting in the chapel at midnight all by myself. Curious, maybe, but honestly, desperate, and hoping that something would be different. And it was there in that place that I discovered the shame-slicing, guilt-remedying, dysfunction-transforming grace of Jesus. So I was sitting in a chair all by myself, and I don't know if it was an audible voice, if it was something that was just resonating within me. I still don't know how to make sense of all that took place in those moments. But I heard something say to me, Jeff, if you come with me, I will save you and your wife and your family, but you'll give the rest of your life to me. But if you don't, it all falls apart from here. So I found myself in that moment, deeply broken and wounded, and I started to, to weep. Not that single tear, but that blubbering, snotting, nasty cry kind of tear. Because it was the first time in my life that I'd been truly brought to the end of myself, and I broke, and my, my pride was stripped away, and I yielded in those moments the best I knew how to, to the grace of Jesus. And I found myself as the woman in Luke chapter 7, who had found himself in the place of Jesus, in the presence of one who didn't bring shame and condemnation, but who instead brought joy, hope, and transformation. And for months after that, and years after that, I would live in this perpetual state of the awe of the grace that I had been afforded, that I had received something Something profound had taken place, and I, for years, could not wrap my mind around it. But then I discovered something. The longer we become accustomed and comfortable with grace, the more prone we are to become dismissive of it, or at least dismissive of our need of it, and perhaps maybe even take for granted its sufficiency in our lives. Now, at first, I didn't see it in myself. I saw it in others. I still remember the moment I had been asked by my pastor, Pastor Kim, he said, would you share your story? And so I, I stood up at Clarksville First Church of Nazarene, and I shared my story. And this is no joke. Afterwards, I went to Sunday school class, and a gentleman met me in Sunday school class, and he looked at me, and he said, man, I just really wish I had a story like yours. Mine's so boring. I grew up in church all my life. I don't have anything like that. And I looked at him like dumbfounded. I'm like, what was he listening to? And I said, dude, I want my kids to have your story, not my story. See, when did we start to take grace for granted? When did we start to mistake grace for the only thing that happens in those significant transformation stories? When do we start to Neglect the fact that it was grace that is at work. If, you've, if you were saved at three or six or eight or VBS and God has kept you and sustained you throughout your entire lives, that's the efficacy of grace. Grace has done that. And that grace is as profoundly important for you as it ever was for me in the midst of the radical transformation that I experienced. But we forget that, don't we? We forget that and, and we start to take that grace for granted. We start to think of ourselves thinking, well, that grace is for them outside, those out there who need it 
probably much more than me. And I got a little self-righteous. I can't believe he'd take grace for granted. Then I noticed it myself. See, when I got saved, grace seemed unfathomable because my debt was so big. But then I became a good Christian. And I started thinking, I think I'm doing all right. And the more you start thinking you're doing all right, the more you begin to lose the allure of grace. Now, I love the way that Luke recounts the story in here because if you ever read Luke, you got to pay attention to his details. He's always doing something. He's always saying a little bit more than probably the other gospel writers because he is so good at like painting pictures. And so Luke says, in, these, in this story, amid the condescending, scornful, angry looks, Jesus does something. He immediately turns the attention away from her the one that everyone was now staring at. And he puts it right on the man whose face betrayed the thoughts that he already had. That one who had made the profession of being a good religious person. And then he tells the story. I love this. Jesus says, hey, so two people owed a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. So think 500 days wages. And the other owed 50 Neither of them had the money. Y'all, y'all heard that, right? Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now here's the question. Now which one of them do you think would love him more? You ever, you ever get those moments when Jesus asks a question where you just want to be able to see what's happening? Because I think this is one of them. We're going to hear another one of those tonight. Where Jesus asked himself, like, which one do you think would love him more? And you know the Pharisees, like, ah, so probably the one who owed him the bigger debt. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Now, I love this because in a moment where people were categorizing themselves, when they were thinking, I'm like the good ones in the room. I'm not like her. I'm not like that sinner. I'm not. Jesus tells the story of people separated, not by condition, but by amount. Y'all heard me, right? They were separated, not by condition, because both were broke. They were only separated by amount. Now, one of them was really broke. Like the kind of broke where you can't even afford to pay attention kind of broke. The other one was just, you know, kind of broke. It's the kind of broke where you just need that something. You know, where you're hoping for that something to come in that you weren't expected. That that unforeseen refund, that relative you didn't know about that left you the inheritance, the the maybe mess up with the IRS, you know, that's something that gets you just out of the little bit of the mess you find yourselves in. But both of them in this story were broke and unable to pay. And friends, can I just tell you, I love this because Jesus is saying broke is broke. It don't matter if you are 50 days late or 500 days late, eventually rent center are going to come take your stuff. All right? Broke is broke. 
But then Jesus says, the graciousness of the moneylender was indiscriminate. He forgave both regardless of the amount. This is huge. The assumption should be that, that each should be equally relieved. But Jesus knew better. He knew that in a world where we seek to categorize ourselves based upon the amount owed, always hoping to find ourselves around those who owe more than us so that we can point to and say, at least I'm not like that. That Jesus knew how folks, how folks handle the fact that the condition might have been the same, but we do not want to be associated with those who owe more than we do. Which would love the money lender more, Jesus asked. I, I think reluctantly, the man says, well, the one who owed more. Now, this is beautiful because then Jesus says, you judge correctly. You know what he's saying there, right? Listen, you've been judging this whole time. You judged me when I walked in with my ragamuffin crew. You judged her since the moment you laid eyes on her. But this is the first time that you've actually judged correctly because now you've implicated yourself in the judgment. You see what happens here, right? Jesus, he dislocates the gaze from the woman toward the one who suffered a similar condition, even if he could justify a lesser amount. See, for me, I think this begins the move towards igniting and stirring something in us for our community. It's when we come face to face again with the neediness that we all have for the same grace that those who are not yet here have for that same grace. See, I am convinced that if you want to start to ignite something in you, you are brought face to face again with the condition, not the amount, that I come conditionally. Where I re recognize that it's only by the grace of God. It is only because God looked at my insufficiency. He saw my bank account. He recognized how little I had, and God poured out his grace upon me time and time and time again. Because grace is not just wooing those who are outside of us to himself. And grace isn't just saving those who are not yet here. Grace is also sustaining each and every one of us in the midst of, if it weren't for him, we'd have an empty bank account. Grace is also sanctifying us, consistently making us new and whole and different. And you can't, you can't moralize yourself into that. You can't, you can't out good behavior your debt. You got to have God at work in your life, providing what you don't have to live out the life that God longs for you to live. I love this. Then Jesus turns to the woman. This is so powerful. Not as an example of all things that are wrong in the world, but instead as the evidence of a world that is being made right. When the irresistible pull towards Jesus leads a person curiously and desperately hopeful who then begins to show this extravagant love, Jesus basically looks at this woman and says, this is how it's done. Listen as Luke records this story. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, you see this woman? I'm going to ask you to see her differently now. Because I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, 
But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You you didn't pour, pour any oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins are forgiven, as her great love has shown for whoever has been forgiven little, unfortunately, loves little. Jesus then makes this beautiful shift in this story. And I think this is, if we can get a hold of this, he moves from talking around her to talking about her to now he moves to talking directly to her. And she looks up from underneath the spotlight. Now it's not the spotlight of shame, but this lavish love and grace that Jesus is pouring out into her life. And listen to the words that Jesus says to her. Your sins, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a beautiful story, isn't it? See, she'd she'd arrived shrouded in her shame, but now living under the weight of, of this favor and grace in the light of God's goodness, she carries herself out of that room a little bit differently than she'd arrived. Now, instead of hunched over shoulders looking down, she can stand up with shoulders rolled back, knowing and living into this grace that had radically saved her. And now instead of the sweet smell of that perfume that entered in this room, it is the sweet aroma of the divine grace that fills this place. See, we look at this story and we realize that grace is indiscriminate. And for those who have amassed a major debt, it can also feel a little bit scandalous. Because Jesus' love is just that extreme. And I experienced that. And it's a favor and a grace that that when I encountered like this woman did not make any sense to me. But the longer I lived as a Christian, isn't that something? Isn't that something? The longer I became as a Christian, and then, then I got into ministry, which meant I became a professional Christian. And I would have once told you, I was the 500. I owed the 500. Then you gave me, you give me a couple, couple decades and I start going, well, I don't know, 50, maybe 25, 10 on a good week. It's not that much, not as much as so-and-so. But the Lord never allows me to linger in my pride before I'm brought face to face once again with the reality of my need for grace. And all of a sudden, as I come face to face with that need of grace, and I begin to realize it doesn't matter if it's 5, 50, 500, or 5,000, that I would not be who I am today. I would not be sustained in this journey of following Jesus. I would not be able to walk in the light of God's goodness and love if grace had not met me, been poured out in my life. And it's that that then begins to stir in me a desire to go out who have yet to claim that grace for their lives and let them to know where they can find that grace for themselves. Did you know grace inspires the mission of God? See, we want to be ignited, which is good, but the community around us should care that we've been lit. Y'all realize that, right? Because if we're just ignited and the community doesn't realize that, that we've been lit, then, then, then our, our moment 
you know what translates for them? So what? Y'all had some great services over there in Sterling First. So what? But see, I'm convinced when you allow God to get a hold of your life again and stir in your life, your, no, your known need for grace, you begin to see yourself, and I love these words, as a hungry beggar who found a little bit of bread who can go tell other hungry beggars where they too can find that same bread. And all of a sudden it shrinks the distance between us and them about amounts because we know we suffer from the same condition and we long to see others claim that grace for themselves. It's my heartbeat for us this weekend. Then maybe you, having been in the church for quite some time and keeping track of your accounts, you start to go, I think I'm doing all right. Can I just tell you if you're doing all right, that's because of grace. You're not, you're not doing all right because you're that good. You're doing all right because God is that good. And if it wasn't for God at work in your life, you wouldn't be doing all that good. And when we come face to face with that and we can own that and receive that again and again, I think something begins to stir in us. So this morning as we get ready to conclude... I guess I would just ask you, are you focusing on the amount or are you reckoning with the condition? Because if it's the condition, then everyone in this room is the same as those who are outside of this room. If it's the amount, then we too often measure. So can we embrace the condition that we are in need of grace all and every single one of us are in need of that amazing grace that can make us whole, that can transform us, and that can use us to be a mouthpiece of that grace all around us. Would you stand with me? Can we pray? Father, Time and time again, I've been reminded that grace didn't stop the moment I yielded to Jesus. Grace was just beginning. And that every step along life's journey, I have needed that grace that not only rescued me, but now sustains me, that has sanctified me, that keeps me. And Lord, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the recognition of that need that I stop taking for granted the goodness that is made available to us, but not to just us. So that, that I move out into our community, I move out into our neighborhood, I move out to wherever I live, work, and play. And I do so recognizing that there's very little that separates, quote-unquote, us from, quote-unquote, them. That we are all in need of the same thing, which is that grace, goodness, and mercy of God. And so when I encounter that waitress or waiter, when I make my way through the markets that I typically go to, when I find myself at those family gatherings with, with that person, that one who seems to be consistently shrouded in shame, 
I needn't categorize myself based upon based upon what they owe and I don't, but instead their need of the same grace that, that has met me. And so, Lord, stir in us, stir in me a longing to make that grace known and to let them know, every one of them, how available it is to them as well. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room today that has yet to encounter that grace, then maybe they're here today, didn't realize that that grace was as indiscriminate as it really is, that it can meet us 500 denarii owers. I pray, Lord, that they would allow their hearts to be overcome by that grace right now. That they would turn to someone around them, one of those recipients of grace, and they would say, how do, I, how do I get some of that grace for myself? Lord, would you begin to stir in us this overwhelmed sense of gratitude for the grace and provision that you provide us? And we ask these things in Jesus' awesome name. Amen and amen.